Several Issues Etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the President and Vice Presidents of Synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Any adoption of same-sex marriage is not just a moral disaster, not just a social disaster, it's a gospel, it's a theological disaster. Progressive education assumes that humans are inherently good. Thus, education should be primarily about helping humans self-express, that there's inherently good things that need to be brought out of the person. God gives us children so they'll break our stuff to keep us from idolatry. Children force you to move out of yourself. The idea that the church could gather without physically gathering together has no place in the church. Christ did not redeem the church, did not redeem his people virtually, but in reality. Lutheran organists love listening to issues, etc., while shoveling snow. The Apostle Peter, when writing about husbands and wives, refers to the wife as the weaker vessel. Now, what does that mean, and why does he say that? What's the context for the Apostle's depiction there of the wife as the weaker vessel? Welcome back to Issues Etc., coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. It's part four of our series on marriage enrichment. We'll get to that question with Pastor David Peterson, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and departmental editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back. Thank you, Todd. Before we begin our discussion of the pertinent passages with regard to what you call subordinate leadership, How much has feminism influenced the church's teaching on women in the family? Well, it's certainly been an ongoing temptation. Hopefully it hasn't influenced us directly, but the spirit of our age to not be able to tell the difference between boys and girls. Feminism is is really very much about a kind of radical equality that can't tell the difference between anybody and who wants everybody to be not to be defined by other people. So it it seems on the surface as though feminism cares about fighting things like misogyny and women being mistreated and abused in various ways. And and if that was the case, we would love it. The problem is, is that feminism might address some of those issues, but it's far deeper in its philosophy and its understanding of the world and the way that it wants the world to actually be. And it's engaged in a whole lot of delusion that just wants to pretend there's no difference. But then because of that kind of fear of being tagged by feminism as a misogynist, it sometimes has caused us to curtail our language and to not speak in a way that's accurate. I mean, it's definitely been a problem. So let's start into what you call subordinate leadership or the capacity of wives. You begin with 1 Peter 3. What do you find there? Well, I find that within the subordination, there is great influence. So here's how it reads. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. That's that word subordinate. 
This is the uh, New King James translates it as submissive. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. And then he goes on to talk about true adornment in the soul and so forth. But the point here is that you can actually change somebody's mind. You can sort of exert influence and leadership from below. And that's that's important. And it's an important reality to recognize that wives have a duty to actually help their husbands, not just simply obey them, but to actually serve them and to serve the family and to work together and to make their husbands better people. So that's a legitimate, godly, biblical mandate to do that and to be that. So that's part of it. The other side of this that I think by implication is that biblical following and leadership is by example. So both in the military world and in the business world, there's a lot of talk about leadership by example. But again, I find it a little bit shallow in a sense because in the military, the purpose is to win the war. And in business, the purpose is to make money. And that are the overarching concerns. So there's some overlap with leadership in the church or kind of biblical leadership or following. But there's a distinction in that our purpose actually is, our mission is the subordinate. But in any case, then to lead by example, right, to actually show a better way, this is ultimately the way that it goes. Now, I know that there's, of course, the word rule is used in the Bible. Jesus rules the church, the son rules the whatever. I mean, you have all that, that, that kind of language, but I don't find that kind of language particularly helpful. It can be if it's rightly understood, if it's nuanced, if it's qualified and the like. But again, I don't see leadership within the family as being a kind of command structure, but rather leadership by example, by persuasion, by sacrifice. So you see that there anyway with wives, that they actually have a role to play and it's a leadership role. So take us again through this notion of being submissive to their own husbands, as Peter says there in First Peter 3. First of all, what's our hang-up about that? Because that really is where the hang-up is. It all starts there. And how should we rightly understand it? Well, I think, you know, the, the hang-up is we're, we're afraid to be submissive or to subordinate ourselves to someone who's imperfect. That's kind of reasonable. But again, we're called to it because it's for the ultimate good, and we believe that it will work out. I mean, Peter says here, right, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. So there is this just simple reality that God has created us to live within order, and he's given us a peculiar husband or a peculiar wife that we are to live within and to cover their sins with our love, their weaknesses, their mistakes, and to help them and to move this thing forward. Why is it so difficult to swallow because it is possible to be abused in these relationships and it is also sometimes somewhat humiliating. But, you know, Christianity is not an easy religion and holy marriage is not an easy calling, but it is a very good religion and it's a very good calling and God uses it to do great good. So, 
I understand why we're nervous about it and why we might not like it and why it might go against the kind of spirit of individualism that rules our age, but it is what God has designed us for and where we find real satisfaction and real purpose. I mean, the very next passage is also important. What Peter says to husbands, husbands likewise deal with them, with your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. So husbands are to dwell with their wives with understanding or with consideration. That is, the the word there is knowledge. You're supposed to actually know them and recognize them as people, and you're supposed to be sympathetic to their needs, to their fears, to their strengths. And even as the wife is helping the husband by example, helping him and providing the things that he needs to be the husband and father that he's been called to be, so also he's to be looking for her too. And it's not just about bringing her into into conformity with his will at all. It's about helping her live out her vocation and giving her what's good for her and her soul and giving honor to her, not treating her as some kind of inferior and recognizing her as a fellow Christian, right? To being heirs together of grace, that she has value, that she's loved by Christ, that we both serve the same commander. We're all under authority, right? The husband is not the ultimate commander in any way at all. And the wife is in no way less than he is or less valuable to Jesus. And he should recognize her and respect her for that that their prayers together would not be hindered. So it's really a kind of balanced act, I guess, or a balanced cooperation that God has created us to serve and to love one another to move forward. And so when I talk about subordinate leadership, I'm not just pandering. I'm not just trying to soften the blow of what's a hard thing to come about. And I'm not either just specifically talking about wives, because this is the reality for all Christians. We're all under authority. We all live within this hierarchical reality that we have subordinates and we have duties to them and we have those in authority over us and we have duties to them. And we're trying to also live within the three estates simultaneously. So all of that's going on together. And it's not a call to be blindly obedient. It's a call to be actively sanctified and to recognize and trust in God's goodness in this order. What is this phrase that Peter uses, the weaker vessel? I think it is just a reference to the physicality of it. I do not think that it has anything to do with moral weakness. That is to say, to recognize that the husband could, just because he's physically capable of it, because he's bigger, because he's stronger, that he could force himself on her or take advantage of her or disregard her because she can't withstand him physically. That rather, he is to see in her the way that she overcomes that physical weakness and the way that she faces the world with courage and the way that she applies her intellect and humbles herself to rely upon other people is actually incredibly honorable and dignified. So he's to learn to see her again as Christ sees her rather than the way that the world might see her. She's not just for his amusement. She's not just for his pleasure. She's not his slave. And even though he has the sort of possibility to overwhelm her physically, nothing could be sort of less Christ-like than that. 
In 1 Corinthians 14, you also kind of grapple with the apostolic instruction about women keeping silent in church, and if they want to know anything, to ask their husbands in private. What do we find there? Well, again, this sounds very offensive to our modern sensibilities. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, again, subordinate, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. We recognize in this passage the prohibition against women serving the church as pastors. But there's more to it than that. That's part of it. And in some ways, that's a bit of a mystery. It says nothing about women's intellectual or emotional or spiritual capacities or or abilities. It just simply says they're not allowed to do it. Part of this, I think, is very much the reality, again, of the order. And that women are, in fact, expected to be interested in theology. They are expected to want to learn, and they're supposed to have questions, and they have the ability to understand the answers and even to come up with their own answers. I think part of the reason that they're not supposed to speak in church is actually so that they don't embarrass their husbands. That is to say that often the way that remonstrance is issued from a subordinate to a superior, you have to always be kind of politically careful in that arrangement, is by asking questions. And if the wife is asking questions that are actually somehow showing her husband's faults or her husband's flaws or weaknesses, or even just holes in his knowledge, that could be potentially embarrassing to him and also is sort of not allowing him to take the headship, to take the leadership, and to be the teacher or the pastor to the family. So there is in a kind of, even though it it sort of stings at first, let your women keep silent, there's a clear indication in this that that isn't because women are too stupid to participate or women are too impure to be part of this at all. That's not it. It's that this isn't the right order, the right time, and the right place. Now, exactly how this gets applied does get a little bit fuzzy, and the kind of classic Lutheran thing, and I think it's right, is to say, you know, to let your women keep silent in churches, of course, doesn't mean that women shouldn't be singing in church or that women shouldn't be, you know, responding with the responses liturgically. It is to say that that women shouldn't be leading church. And particularly here then, meaning that they shouldn't be leading the worship service. They shouldn't be preaching. They shouldn't be leading the liturgy, I would say. And it's not that they couldn't do it physically or intellectually and the like, but rather that they should allow those whose vocation it is to do it. And they should protect the reputations of their husband and encourage their husbands to actually read the Bible, to seek out the answers, to be capable of teaching them. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. It's part four of our series on marriage enrichment. On the other side, it is true, though, that many, even in our Lutheran circles, have adopted the attitude of what's the most we can get away with with respect to these passages. We'll discuss that next. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for January would make a great gift for your pastor. It's the New Concordia Commentary on John, chapter 7, verse 2, to chapter 12, verse 50. This latest Concordia Commentary is written by Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Bill Weinrich. Learn more about our January Book of the Month at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The New Concordia Commentary on John 7-2 to 12 
This fallen creation is bested by tornado, hurricane, flood, pandemic, and more. LCMS Disaster Response helps our congregations, their pastors, and other church workers to reach out to their members and neighbors with mercy, which flows from Christ's altar. We offer quality volunteer training, help for congregational readiness and response, and disaster grant funding. To learn more, visit lcms.org disaster. That's lcms.org disaster. Equipping the priesthood of all believers, you're listening to Issues Etc. At Our Savior Lutheran Church in Winchester, Virginia, you will hear God's Word faithfully preached every Sunday. We invite you to join our growing family of believers this week and every week for Education Hour beginning at 9 a.m., followed by Divine Worship at 10 a.m. For more information, find us on the web at OurSavior-LCMS.org. That's Our Savior. The Word of God, Daily Worship, Lutheran Hymnody and Catechesis, Instruction in Phonics, Traditional Math, Literature, Grammar, History, Latin, and Strings. It's all part of our daily life here at St. Paul Lutheran School in Hamill, Illinois. St. Paul is seeking teaching candidates for the 2023-24 school year. Learn more at school at stpaulhamel.org. Consider joining the faithful faculty at the only classical Lutheran school in Greater St. Louis. School at stpaulhamill.org. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. On this Thursday, the 5th of January, it's part four of our series on marriage enrichment. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. David, before the break, you were talking about how we we deal with these passages that are often difficult to implement about women keeping silent in church, dealing with them in a reasonable way, still faithful to the text. But you know as well as I do that in maybe a generation ago or or so, it started this movement even among us Lutherans to kind of say, we're going to get away with as much as we can while still technically not violating the letter of these passages. What do you make of that? that approach to the idea of women in the family and the church. Yeah, I mean I think that's exactly the wrong way to go. I mean that's a problem when we're when we're just pushing the limits because we can. And perhaps in a sense some of these things could have been acceptable and they're not exactly technically wrong and in a kind of emergency situation maybe this would have been what we would have done. Maybe if there w- if we would have had a pastor you know, at a female prison or something, I don't know, and there's no men to do anything, then we're going to need some leadership within that organization, some lay leadership and so forth. And maybe we'd have a woman who serves as the congregational president or something. So technically, there might be a situation in an extreme place where that would be appropriate, and it doesn't violate scripture, so fine, go ahead. But I think in our world, this is very problematic because it sends very mixed messages and its problems. And while I wouldn't want to be legalistic about this and, you know, dogmatic and say the Bible says exactly this, I do think that we need to be careful about what sort of leadership roles we have women in and what we're asking them to do publicly for the church. We actually don't have female acolytes for this very reason, not because I think it's sinful to have a female acolyte. I don't think it's sinful to have a female acolyte at all. I have zero problems with it morally. I do think, however, that in our day and age, 
it's just not that helpful to have females investments in the front of the service helping to lead the service. I don't have a problem with a female organist. I don't have a problem with maybe even maybe a female conjure from the choir loft. So I mean, where do you draw the line? And maybe, you know, we're going to come out down in different places and I'm okay with that. But this idea that because the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid it, it's a means it's it's completely tolerable is not helpful and it's not really it's not reasonable. It's not responsible. We have a responsibility to take stewardship of the church and to try to make good decisions and to do things in our practice, in our decorum that are consistent with our theology and don't confuse people or send the wrong message. You say, follow me is moderated by love your neighbor as yourself. It is a call to order both subordination and the exercise of authority. What are you talking about there? Well, I think we need to remember that we're not called sort of directly by Jesus to lead, right? He never says, go lead the church. He says, follow me. That's what he says to everybody. He says to Peter, feed my church. He says other things to the apostles and to the pastors, but we're all under authority. None of us are the supreme commander of our families, of our churches, of our government. I mean, we're we're living in this and we need to recognize that. So follow me is is part of this but also we're not just called to kind of be passively sheep that don't again take responsibility for our relationships for our duties who don't make decisions that are good right we've been given these talents and we need to do something with them we can't just bury them in the sand so love your neighbor as yourself is sort of the other half in my mind of follow me there is the reality that we're not in charge And yet at the same time, we've been given things to do, and it's driven by love, right? So we're both subordinate to Christ as well as subordinate to other things within the estates, the pastor, the bishop, the president, the boss, the father, and so forth. And at the same time, I mean, unless you're a very, very young child, you always also have subordinates. Even if you're not a young child, you probably still, if you have younger siblings, right, you have responsibilities toward them and duties. And as life goes on, that gets even more complicated. So I'm sort of, I guess what I'm doing in some sense is trying to defend why I'm talking so much about leadership and why I'm talking about subordination as a leadership term, not simply as a term of control or obedience or just mission accomplishment, that it's actually about caring for one another and serving in love as followers of Jesus Christ. What do you make of the idea that's popular, usually among our fellow pastors, that this term leadership has been abused, of course, in evangelical circles, and they kind of fall off the horse on the other side saying, we shouldn't be talking about leadership at all, only servanthood. Yeah, I think that's just naive. It's an overreaction. We, our pastors particularly are called to lead their congregations, to teach them. I mean, wouldn't we be just absolutely ashamed of a pastor who walked into a congregation and said, I'm just going to leave this up to the people? I mean, look, that, that would be unacceptable. I'm always sort of a little bit insulted professionally when one of my brothers starts, and I know they don't mean it exactly, but when they start talking about how, you know, I've learned so much more from the LWML than they ever taught me. And I thought, 
boy, you're really lousy at your job, you know? Not that there's nothing to be learned from the LWML, but you're there to teach. And teaching is a leadership activity, right? It's persuasion. And you're also there to lead, again, by example. So if a pastor isn't himself a penitent, if he doesn't have a father confessor, if I was the bishop, I'd remove him from office. You cannot subscribe to the Lutheran confessions and teach the small catechism and then neglect part of it. The lay people are kind of capable of it because they're held to a different standard, but the pastor has to lead by example. You can't tell other people to go to confession because that's what the confessions and the Bible say, and then you yourself not do it. I would say the same sort of thing. I think the pastor has to tithe. I think the pastor has to go to church on vacation. I think the pastor has to actually live the life in an outward way. I don't mean he's perfect in it, but that leadership by example is essential to the character of the office. It is a Christological reflection. Jesus leads by example. So, I mean, all of this sort of stuff is, is real and is important. And when we talk in this way as though we're not leading, we're still leading. We just, we're just doing a bad job of it because we're not deliberate or intentional. And we don't know what we're doing. So I understand the kind of distress over abuse when we've talked about leadership within the church with sort of thinly veiled language of servant leadership or something, or just really talking about being a CEO or the head of a franchise, and we're just trying to increase profits. Yes, that's offensive. At the same time, you know, it's sort of like, there's so much of this. It's like, uh, there's also been in evangelical circles, a lot of abuse about the role of the pastor's wife. And then, you know, the kind of confessional Lutheran fall off. It's as though we act as though there is no such thing as a pastor's wife and she doesn't have any kind of public presence or role in the congregation and, and nobody should notice. And again, that's just foolish. It's not true to experience and it ends up causing kind of extreme opposite problems. So in all of this, you know, we, we need to just kind of take a deep breath try not to have the knee-jerk reaction, try to have a nuanced response, and be, again, kind of reasonable, responsible, gentle, biblical people. This is Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. It's part four of our Marriage Enrichment Series with David Peterson. Life After Row is the theme of the January issue of the Lutheran Witness Magazine. Mental health is February's theme. The Lutheran Witness Magazine interprets the world from a Lutheran perspective. You can receive an annual print and digital subscription for less than $20. Learn more at cph.org witness or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Lutheran Witness Magazine. We'll talk about the table of duties and Pastor Peterson calls it a roadmap to marriage next. If you appreciate Issues Etc., our 24-7 music and talk stations, and our daily verse-by-verse Bible study, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, please include a bequest in your will or trust for these worldwide media resources. Bequests aren't subject to federal tax or capital gains taxes. Ensure your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren the opportunity to listen by including a bequest in your will or trust for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, and the word of the Lord endures forever. Lutheran Talk.
the cause of our salvation doesn't lie within us, but instead it lies outside of us, namely in the mercy of our God who sends his Son to live and die and rise again for us. Lutheran Music Listen anytime, anywhere with the Lutheran Public Radio mobile app. Download for iPhone, Android, and Kindle at issuesetc.org. For your next family vacation, consider Our Beach House, a charming three-bedroom vacation rental on beautiful Siesta Key. Just off Sarasota, Florida, Siesta Key Beach, consistently voted America's best, is just 100 steps away. Whether you're watching the sunset over the Gulf of Mexico or frolicking in the warm surf, you and your family will fall in love with Siesta Key. Check us out at SiestaKeyRentalGenie.com or call Virginia at 941-266-1858. Our Christian faith is under constant attack, and we must be proactive in keeping our children in the church. At Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, we believe that an education rooted in God's Word is one that stands against the very gates of hell. Nothing in this world is more important. Offering a rigorous classical Lutheran education, we provide in-person and live online remote learning opportunities for preschool through grade 12. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Theology for Blue Collar, White Collar, and Clerical Collar. You're listening to Issues Etc. Come and experience firsthand by sitting down in classes and actually hearing professors. Coming to chapel, which is always the high point of the day to hear the Word of God and to lift our voices in song. Issues Etc. regular guest Dr. Paul Grimm on why you should consider visiting Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Spend time talking to professors. I mean, there's not a professor here who will not be willing to, to take time, whether it's after chapel during the coffee hour or just to come into one's study and, and sit down and talk for a while, to answer questions, to you know, help them to get a sense of, A, you know, do they want to be a pastor or a deaconess? And then B, is this the right place? And well, maybe C would be the question, is now the right time for them to make that decision? If you've contemplated the vocation of pastor or deaconess, contact Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, 1-800-481-2155, 800-481-2155, or send an email to admission at ctsfw.edu. It's part four of our series on marriage enrichment with Pastor David Peterson. He's Pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and Departmental Editor of God Distincts, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. What is the table of duties in Luther's small catechism, and why do you call it a roadmap to marriage? The table of duties are simply a series of Bible passages that Luther pulls out that help us understand the three estates, which I'll get to in a second, and our duties within them, both in terms of exercising authority and also as being subordinates. And in some ways, I mean, the table of duties sort of answer all of our ethical questions in some ways more pointedly than the Ten Commandments. Now, why would I say that? Because the Ten Commandments need to be sort of nuanced to your station in life, right? And the table of duties are already explicitly to your station in life. So most of us, I mean, I myself, I actually, I don't know the table of duties by heart to my shame. 
I've never required the children to memorize it. I've never memorized them. It's on my list of something I need to amend my life and do. It's part of the catechism. When you were in confirmation instruction, did you memorize the table of duties, Todd? No, we did not. Yeah, I don't. Oh, I, so I don't know why we don't. We should because they're they're beautiful and they're important. And instead of making up Bible pa- or finding Bible passages to have the kids memorize, we ought to use the ones that are there. So anyway, here's how Luther does it. I'm going to add some stuff here to just sort of help us see the structure. If you just opened up your catechism and you found the table of duties, you just see a list of Bible passages and it would say, uh, the first thing would be uh, to bishops, pastors, and preachers. And then it would have these three Bible passages, 1 Timothy 3, 2 to 4, 1 Timothy 3, 6, and then Titus 1, 9. And then the next one would say, what hearers owe their pastors, and then there's five Bible passages. What maybe wouldn't be so obvious to you if you weren't analyzing this, is that Luther has this very explicitly laid out according to the three estates. So the first two are the church. This is what is it to be a pastor and what's a pastor or a bishop or whatever, whatever we're going to call them. What's the clergy? What are they supposed to do? And then what's the response of those who hear, right? What's the lay people's response? That's the church. Those in authority, those in subordination. And then he immediately goes to Uh, The next thing says of civil government and then of citizens. Well, that's the second estate, the government or the the state itself, right? That is, what are the two parts? There's, There's a part in authority, the government, and there's the part in subordination, everybody else, the citizens. And then he goes to the family, but he doesn't say that again. He just says to husbands, to wives, to parents, to children, to workers, and so forth. So that's the way that the estates are are divided. And then within the the estates, there's this very clear authority subordinate thing. He doesn't lay it out in kind of an outline form. You have to just sort of recognize it. But it's very intentional. And it's very helpful, I think, to know that. So, and now, so having known that, we go, oh, okay, well, great. If I'm the mayor of the city, I'll read this passage and I'll know what to do. True. But uh, uh, they're not actually that particular. So even though they're laid out according to the three estates, really everything that's said, even that which is said to pastors explicitly, is applicable to any Christian who's exercising authority. And even though things that are said explicitly to wives or to children, right, are, are somewhat particular to them, but they're not unique. So they actually apply to anybody who is under authority. And so looking at all of them and thinking in that kind of dichotomy, I think is really incredibly useful and something that we probably haven't done enough of. We've just sort of gone, oh, great, here's, here's how I know what I owe the government, rather than sort of thinking about how what I owe the government also helps me understand what I owe my father and what I owe my pastor and the like. And there's a lot of overlap then, which wouldn't be that surprising when we start to sort of lay this out. So what I have done is I've tried to kind of go through these passages, and I just took the ones that Luther provides. We could come up with a bunch more passages that deal with these same issues. Luther doesn't claim in any way here to be exhaustive, but these are kind of a sampling of the sorts of things that the, that the New Testament says about these, the duties of these offices. So we won't read all these Bible passages, but I want to read a few. So let's just, we'll, we'll track the way Luther tracks. Oh, let me say something else about the three estates. So the three estates 
are the three institutions for human beings that God created in the world that we live in simultaneously. And it all has to do about with order and goodness and then recognizing kind of limitations. So we have to think about all three of those simultaneously because we live in all of them simultaneously. A lot of what we talk about under the terminology of vocation really what is better talked about in my mind under the estates. And I say that because the word vocation is a little bit confusing, I think, because we have like vocational schools that are job training. And we sometimes have used the word vocation in that way. I've heard a lot of Lutherans talk about, you know, working in a fast food restaurant as a burger flipper, that's a vocation. I wouldn't talk that way myself. I don't think that's quite the way Luther intends it. But, you know, there's freedom in how we talk about these things. But here's the deal is that the idea is that God has called you to be a citizen of the world. And that means to be a member of creation. And that means that you live within these three things simultaneously, that you live within the church as a baptized child of God, and you have relationships within the church that bring duties and burdens upon you. And those relationships are reciprocal in that they have duties for you, and they are the way that God provides for you. So the kind of clearest and most obvious to me, maybe because I'm a pastor, but when I stand up on Sunday morning and I say to the congregation, I as a called and ordained servant of the word announce the grace of God unto you and in the stead and by the command, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? I do this by the command of God. This is my duty. It is my, my vocation. I've been called by God. That's what the word vocation means to be called. I've been called by God particularly to do this and I've been commanded to do it. And if I don't do it, I sin and I'm going to hell if I don't repent of it, right? This is what I have to do. For me, this is law. But of course, for the person in the pew that's receiving this, and and I, of course, thanks be to God, receive this from others. What does he hear? He hears your sins are forgiven and God is actually working through this and providing. So what's law to me is gospel in a sense to the one who receives it. So the mother's job and duty is to feed the children and she has to do it right? This is her burden, but the children are actually receiving that food from the hand of God and and, and on down the line. So there's this way that this goes. And I wouldn't say a burger flipper is a vocation. I would say it's a way that the vocation is carried out, that the vocation would be you are a son and your dad told you to get a job, or you are a a father, and it's a way to make money to feed your family, or you're a citizen of the world, and it's a way to actually feed people with food, and people need food. So, so there's service in the, in the estates, the relationships within the estates, that which we are called to by God, is a far more noble thing than the way we fulfill it. So maybe I mow the lawn, maybe I flip burgers, maybe I change the oil, maybe I change diapers, maybe I stir the soup. Those are all good, noble deeds, but they're not as good and noble as being a mother or being a father or being a son, because those have to do with the greater and eternal reality. That was a big speech. So let's try to look at this thing real quick about if we take Luther's table of duties and these passages, what can we sort of discern from them about 
ultimately marriage and how we live within marriage, but also how we live within families and in society. So I'll just read the, the first passage under bishops, pastors, and preachers. 1 Timothy 3, 2 to 4. The overseer, that's our word for bishop, the overseer must be above reproach. The husband of but one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him with proper respect. Okay, great. That's the qualifications to be a pastor. Well, I think we can summarize that by largely saying, that he's to be virtuous, right? That he's to be uh, respectable in the community. We don't expect him to be perfect. We know that the flesh struggles against these things, but we expect him to act outwardly in a certain way that is not disgraceful. We expect him to be competent in family management and discipline. So now that's what it is to be an authority over the church, right? To be a preacher. But I'm saying, and I think it's obvious once it's said, that, you know, that kind of list is also applicable to fathers within the home and to bosses at work and to police officers and down the line. Anyone who's exercising authority, male or female, in any of the estates, these things are all right and the the sort of ideal we should be striving for. Now, I'm not saying that this necessarily, that the a husband of one wife, therefore you can't be a police officer, but I'm saying it demonstrates to us what we're looking for and what is required for Christians to exercise authority in a godly way. And even though this is a passage particular to pastors, the principles here go beyond that. So we could look at the other passages for pastors. I would just say First Timothy, you know, some of this is overlap, but there is that the pastor is not to be conceited. And then in First Timothy first 9, that he has to be steadfast in doctrine and competent in doctrine. And again, we, this is what we want out of anybody. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. It's part four of our series on marriage enrichment. We'll summarize the table of duties and talk about how it specifically applies to men and women next. Several issues, etc. regular guests are candidates for leadership positions in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Every LCMS congregation has received nomination forms for the president and vice presidents of synod. Please encourage your pastor and congregational leaders to fill out and return these nomination forms before February 28th of 2023. Learn more at issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. Issuesetc.org slash 2023 nominations. For nearly 140 years, the Lutheran Witness has taught the faith, defended it against error, and shown forth the great treasures of the Lutheran Church and biblical doctrine. We're continuing this legacy by publishing issues and articles that help you see the world from a Lutheran perspective and that teach biblical doctrine and show forth the treasures of God's Word. Visit our website to learn more and how to subscribe, witness.lcms.org. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Sanctifying your commute with the Word of God. You're listening to Issues Etc. Is your child struggling at school? Are you thinking about homeschooling? Would you like help knowing what to teach and how to teach it? 
The Simply Classical Curriculum from Memoria Press provides an enriching, step-by-step classical Christian education for students who have autism, learning or behavioral difficulties, ADHD, and more. You'll find everything you need, including daily lesson plans to guide your way. Learn more at simplyclassical.com. Use LPR23 to save on your order. simplyclassical.com. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatics series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. It's part four of our series on marriage and ritual with Pastor David Peterson, departmental editor of God Saints, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. So, David, how would you summarize the table of duties, bring it all together, and then make it applicable or explain how it's applicable to our subject here, women and men? Okay, great. So I just took all those Bible passages, tried to condense down those kind of qualities, and I'll just I'll just read it off here. Here's what I see. We could find other passages that support this. We might be able to add a little bit of nuance, but I don't really think we'd add much. So here we go. For subordinates, the subordinates are called upon to support the authorities, to share good things with the authorities, to give the authorities their proper wages, to honor, respect, and obey authorities, to submit to authorities. I'm just using submit because that's from the catechism, and the catechism uses the ESV. Submit to authorities. They are to give what is due to authorities, including taxes, revenue, respect, and honor. They're to pray for the authorities. They're to be ready to do good for the authorities and the mission of the organization. They're to act with sincerity, serve wholeheartedly, to be humble. And that's interesting because that's a particular charge Luther pulls out to youth. It's literally to young men. So this has to do with the particular temptation, I think, that comes when you're in transition between childhood and adulthood and what's your relationship to your father. But boy, doesn't that apply also in many ways to what it is to be a wife, for example, when maybe you're smarter than your husband, but he's still in authority over you. So that's a beautiful one, thinking about how the admonition to young men applies to others. And then to widows, this is kind of, but (laughs) the widows are to be honest and not lazy. There's this, uh, this fear that the widows might take advantage of their circumstances and play upon the sympathies of others to sort of get a free ride. So that's the subordinates. And I really think it's, it's interesting to sort of think about, okay, I'm a wife. How do I think about my husband? How do I treat him? And that's a great list to think about. And then the authorities, if you're exercising authority, to be virtuous, to be competent in office, to provide discipline, to not be conceited. So it goes both ways on that one. To be competent in theology, because doctrine matters, even if you're a police officer, doctrine matters. Recognize the divine institution of the office. Uh, We could sort of add on there, let no one despise your youth, right? If you've been called to the office, you've been called to the office, you need to exercise it without shame. Recognize it's been instituted by God. Be considerate to subordinates, be respectful 
to and of subordinates, to give honor to subordinates, to recognize the faith of the subordinates, to love the subordinates, to not be harsh with subordinates, to not anger or provoke the subordinates, to train the subordinates, to teach them, and then finally, don't threaten them. And then he gives at the very end to everyone, so a kind of summary, love your neighbor as yourself and pray for everyone. So all of that really in, in many ways just comes, right? I mean, love your, love your neighbor as yourself is, of course, the ultimate description of the second table of the law from Jesus' own mouth and Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we could see that what would we want if we were the one in charge, how would we want to be treated by our subordinate, right? And likewise, if we were the subordinate, how would we want to be treated by the one in charge? If we just were really honest about that, we probably would have no trouble at all. We would be humble and kind and generous and, and the like. But reading through those Bible passages and sort of thinking about that and how we relate to one another I find a very helpful exercise for husbands and wives to recognize that the relationship requires sacrifice, it requires effort, and it requires a setting of the will, though I, I like to think of that more as a kind of intellectual, right, to actually understand it and think about it in concrete and in biblical ways rather than just sort of going through the motions and becoming sloppy and lazy in marriage and hurting each other, maybe unintentionally, but, but still doing it. So instead, you know, kind of being active in this and recognizing our duties. How do we overcome what we've discussed here before, which is sometimes the hesitantness to teach these things as they're taught in Holy Scripture and the hesitancy of many, sadly, Christians to accept wholeheartedly what Scripture teaches without trying to qualify it or so qualify that it stops teaching what it actually teaches. Yeah. I think the, the passage that really kind of speaks to me on all of this is this, the Romans uh, 13 passage under the government about the divine institution of the office. And in the passage I quoted from Paul about don't let anyone despise your youth, I think one of the largest problems we have in our current situation is men being ashamed of their authority within the home and being afraid of looking totalitarian or looking disrespectful and therefore kind of refusing to lead or refusing to teach. And I, this is the same thing within the church. I mean, I think there's a kind of embarrassment over our authority that, that just wants to be one of the guys or just wants to be one of the friends or whatever. I mean, I can just, it just goes across the board, parents and children, husbands and wives, pastors and congregations, presidents and the Congress. I mean, it's just, it's just this kind of, I don't know if it's just an American problem, but whatever that it's actually kind of is destructive and it is actually damaging, right? Children actually need structure. They need discipline. They need the adults to act like adults and to set limits. And when the parents don't do that, it's destructive and it causes problems. And all subordinates need that from those who are in authority over them. Wives need that from husbands. Congregations need that from pastors. Pastors need it from the bishop on and on it goes. And 
because it can be abused doesn't mean that it shouldn't be done because the lack of doing it is maybe not an equal abuse, but it's certainly also abusive. Let's put this in practical pastoral terms. When someone comes in for marital counseling, let's say it's not the case where they've already decided they're going to get a divorce or separate, which is so sadly so often the case, but they really, really are fighting to save their marriage, to strengthen their marriage. How often is it in your experience without telling any stories out of school that these issues we've been discussing, these issues of subordination, of proper leadership, headship, and things like that are at least part of the problem? Oh, I, I think it's often the problem. I mean, I don't know how often, but I can think of many examples where it sounds surprising to people, but it won't be surprising to you, that really what Christian wives want is for their husbands to lead. You know, Jail doesn't want to drive the tent stake through Sisera's head. She has to because Barack is a wimp, right? And he's failing in his duties. And, you know, the women, I mean, I'm sure there's you know, rebellious women out there and so forth, but it, not much in our churches. I think they they recognize the biblical order. They want to be women. They want the men to be men. They want them to lead. They want them to teach. They don't want to be treated like dirt. They don't want to be condescended to and, and treated stupidly because they're not, but they also actually appreciate the man taking the burdens and doing things. You know, think about this. I was thinking about the kind of sacrificial leadership side of this thing a little bit as a pastor, I was thinking how often I have to talk to family members of my members because their own, because they're ashamed to, or they're afraid to, right? So I, I don't want to do it either, right? So your daughter's living with her boyfriend and you're afraid to tell her it's wrong because then she won't like you, but you know, she needs to be told it's wrong. So it falls to me, the pastor. That's not really my job as the pastor. That's your job as the father, right? But I, I do it because I sort of recognize in some sense that there's a weakness or a fear there that makes it hard to carry this out. And I know that there's going to be a cost to doing it. Typically, she's not going to like me. She's going to become angry. And quite likely, you are too at me because you want me to do it, but you don't really trust me to do it. And if it fails, you want somebody to blame and all that. But you know, I walk into those situations on a regular basis and I know what I'm doing. I'm making a kind of sacrifice and carrying on for the father because he just can't quite do it. But then at the same time, he needs to be admonished. So it's a sacrifice that I make. It's an example that I ideally, I mean, you know, not that I care. I don't mean to say, you know, I got this thing covered. I know what I'm doing, but you know, I'm, I'm trying. And so, you know, I do it. It is a kind of sacrifice. I don't enjoy it. It's not pleasant. And it is a kind of example to him. It needs to have also an admonishment. It should be gentle. I don't want to just say, hey, you're a wimp, dirtbag. I'm doing your job. At the same time, he does need to know that I'm doing his job and that, and that he needs to do it. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of subordinates that do that as well. So there's a lot of wives that are doing their husband's jobs for them, and they're making this sacrifice. They are showing by example, but they want their husbands to do this. And I don't think the subordinates are going to have as much trouble with it as the one in authority. How would you summarize everything we've said so far today <laughs> with about a minute? This is the what is good. I would say the summary is 
God didn't set this up just as a list of rules to try to make you jump through hoops. This is actually for goodness and what God promises to bless. It isn't always easy, and it doesn't necessarily bring perfect happiness and joy on this side of life, but it does bring a kind of satisfaction because it is complete and it is good, and God does promise to bless it. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He's departmental editor of God Estinth, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Friday on Issues Etc. We'll look forward to Sunday morning according to the one-year lectionary talking about the baptism of our Lord with Pastor Sean Denzer, Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And it's This Week in Pop Christianity with Chris Rosebro of Fighting for the Faith. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. You're invited to a special life service Sunday afternoon at 3 on January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Pastor Michael Salamink, Executive Director of Lutherans for Life, will be the guest preacher. What does Jesus have to do with life issues? Find out at a life service Sunday afternoon at 3, January 22nd at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Columbia, Illinois. Learn more at sidadvocatesforlife.com. Hi, this is Pastor Clayton from Zion Lutheran Church of Mascuda, Illinois, a proud supporter of Issues Etc. Zion is a congregation firmly grounded in God's grace given in the Word and Sacraments where we treasure the timeless beauty of the liturgy. Zion is also a vibrant, young, family-friendly congregation where you would be warmly welcomed. Zion is located at 101 South Railway Street in Mascuda, Illinois, and we would love to share God's gifts of grace with you. For more information, please visit our website at zionmascuta.com.